When I was a boy, I spent a lot of time at my Grandma Goods house in Lidditz. I loved to go to Grandma Goods. I loved to sleep over at uh, her house and to wake up on Saturday mornings to watch cartoons. Uh, it was just such a, such a cool thing. And she would make me breakfast. And my grandma loved to make food for her family. And she kept it coming. It was like, uh, you know... Are, do you want something to eat? No, no, Grandma, I'm, I'm full. Are you sure you don't want something to eat? Would you like me to make you some toast? Or would you like me to go kill the fatted calf? Would you like me to slaughter the pig and get you some fresh bacon? I mean, it was like, Grandma, I'm not hungry. Um, I love that about my Grandma Good. Love that about her. We all get full and lose our appetite. Sometimes not even wanting to think about food. And it's interesting. Aren't there times we feel full on life and don't really feel hungry for Jesus? Maybe we've had a great week. Maybe we've hit some accomplishments, accomplished a goal. Maybe we've been successful in some way and we forget our need for God. Somehow we don't feel hungry, but we are hungry We just feel full because of all the other stuff. Then we hit a really low time, maybe, and the hunger comes rushing back and we become more in tune with our great need. Are you aware of how spiritually hungry you really are? We left off in John 6 in the middle of a conversation uh, between Jesus and the, the Jews that had eaten across the Sea of Galilee who wanted more bread, but they didn't really want Jesus. And so that now they're in Capernaum, and Jesus continued to say really difficult things that were hard to digest. Jesus is hard to understand for the hard-hearted man. Jesus is hard to understand for the hard-hearted man. In John 6, Jesus was revealing himself as the all-satisfying bread of life. But most of the crowd already felt full. They were hardened toward the teaching of Jesus. Yet, Jesus repetitively, graciously and repetitively appealed to them to believe in him. Verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 36, you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Are you catching his theme? Verse 51 starts to get really weird for these people. I am the living bread. That came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Hmm. Odd. That's strange for someone with a hard heart. We know from verse 59 that Jesus said these things in the synagogue. Uh, as he taught at Capernaum, Jesus absolutely went to outcasts, but sometimes we forget that Jesus also went to religious people. 
God-fearing people. After he taught for a short time, verse 52 tells us, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They actually fought vigorously over the words and teaching of Jesus. They couldn't make sense of him. Why? They didn't feel particularly hungry. They were prideful and hard. They couldn't sense their need for Jesus. They thought they were full, so his message was largely undiscernible for them. Tough to hear. Think about that. Do you feel hungry? So hungry that Jesus makes perfect sense. How dangerous artificial fullness is. How it obstructs our minds and our hearts from really discerning Jesus. Many people like Jesus. Millions of people in America like Jesus, but don't really believe the gospel. Their sense of fullness comes from themselves. Their ability to be moral or attend church or to live without anybody's help. And so they are disoriented about their acute spiritual hunger for Jesus. Ultimately, it's pride. It's pride. It's a hard heart that prevents them from admitting their need. Are you the type of person that finds it hard to ask for help? You think you can do it on your own. You're the type of person that's like, I'm not going to ask anybody for anything because I got this. I got this. Well, that may say something uh, very poignant, very helpful about where you are spiritually and your spiritual maturity. Are you trying to survive on your own morality? Are you trying to survive on your own performance? And that's a really tough way to live. Jesus will only be good news for you when you know you need him to live. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, very famously, blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied That means to hunger and thirst for a righteousness you don't have. Satisfaction comes with the righteousness of Christ imputed or ascribed to you. True happiness comes when you enjoy the righteousness that only Jesus can give you. For the hard-hearted man, his own righteousness is sufficient. His own willpower is sufficient. His own life is sufficient. Jesus explained why many, many people fail to understand him. I mean to really understand what he's getting at. Remember John 6, 44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus tells some Jews in John 8, 42 through 47, If God were your Father, you would love me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's Jesus talking. That's some really tough language to swallow. 
Hard-hearted people don't really understand Jesus because they don't love Him. They can't bear to hear His words. They are children of the devil and do what He desires. They dislike truth and they are not of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 puts it another way. Paul writes, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly. They are just so stupid. We've, we're beyond that now. The primitive Sunday school doctrine of Jesus. Ah, to the natural person it's just folly and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. People don't really understand Jesus because he's spiritually discerned. You can't understand Jesus on your own. You need the illumination of the Holy Spirit who is in you to help you track with Jesus. Otherwise, Jesus is dull. He's just archaic. He's just a nice guy. And he's nonsensical. Jesus gets more radical in verse 53. With emphasis, he says, truly, truly. That's adding emphasis. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. If you're not eating and drinking, you're dead. If you're not eating and drinking, you're dead. Now, here's some background. Cannibalism was repulsive to the Jews, They didn't even eat bacon, let alone people. That's just gross. So it makes sense why they were a bit confused about what Jesus was saying. Also, eating flesh with blood was forbidden. God told Noah in Genesis 9, 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. This anti-blood law is mentioned in other places of the Old Testament as well. God had made himself clear. So Jesus' words were very audacious. They were bold. They were provocative. And they didn't get it. Where was Jesus going with this? Well, we know cannibalism is out for obvious reasons. Is Jesus talking about the Lord's Supper? At quick glance, it sounds like it. But no, for several reasons. One, he he hadn't instituted the Lord's Supper yet. Two, his listeners had no context for the Lord's Supper. And three, it would mean in the context of John 6 that the Lord's Supper gives eternal life, which is contrary to Scripture. It would also dismiss his metaphor and the main point of what he's trying to say. His words related to the Lord's Supper... But he meant something else. What did Jesus mean by flesh and blood? This hopefully will help us understand this. These these other passages are helpful. In Matthew 20, 18 through 19, Jesus talked about being condemned to death, flogged and crucified. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus told his disciples, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So for Jesus, flesh and blood is directly linked to crucifixion, ransom, grace, and the forgiveness of sins. Paul said that Jesus obtained the church of God with his own blood. He bought us with blood. Paul wrote in Ephesians 1.7, we have redemption through the blood of Jesus. 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Hebrews 9, describe how Jesus entered in once and for all into the holy place by means of His own blood, therefore securing eternal redemption for God's people. His blood purifies our conscience from dead works so we can serve the living God. In Hebrews 9.22, we learn that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. And those are bodily, bloody wounds. Peter says in the next chapter, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And John writes in 1 John 1.7, And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Flesh and blood in John 6 carry the profound message of the cross where Jesus gave His flesh and blood as payment for sin to satisfy the wrath and justice of God and justify and redeem all God's people, restoring them to right relationship with God. Flesh and blood is the gospel. Redemption and forgiveness and grace and purification and justification and reconciliation and resurrection and eternal life and union with Christ. They're all implicit in verses 52 through 59. Even Leviticus 17.11 is embedded here in this passage. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood, it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. His blood atones. His blood is life. But what about the verbs eat and drink? Odd, right? Kind of weird from the surface. Verse 35 is a, a really strong indicator of what Jesus Christ means by eat and drink. Using a metaphor, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Do you see it? And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is talking about belief in Him, in the gospel. He's explaining them the essence of saving faith. He's saying, unless you eat me by faith, drink me by faith, believe and trust in me as the exclusive atoning sacrifice for your sins, you have no life in you. If you're not eating and drinking by faith, according to Jesus, you're dead. Jesus believed he was the only viable object of belief and he spoke in provocative, very provocative metaphor to explain this to his audience. When was the last time that you went to a buffet and you noticed that dead people were eating and drinking? This doesn't happen, folks. I hope it never happened to you. I love buffets, but I've never eaten one with a dead guy. And if you have, please talk to me after the service. One, I would love to hear about it. And two, I can offer maybe some helpful counsel to get you through that horrible experience. 
Dead people don't eat and drink. Spiritually dead people do not trust in Christ. They may like Him. They don't trust in Him. But people who realize their own ravenous hunger, their own ravenous spiritual hunger, they devour Jesus by faith because they know they need Him so much. They just want one more taste. Just give me some more of Jesus because I'm hungry here. I need, I need, I need to take, I need to receive from you, Jesus. Please be, be that. Satisfy me. So, if you're eating and drinking, you're alive. You're alive. Jesus restates verse 53 in the positive in verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. And this verse, folks, is so encouraging. I mean, if you own the truth of verse 54, this whole passage really, but you can get through anything. No matter what comes your way, this will help you endure. Whoever feeds... Whoever feeds, no discrimination and inequity there. The invitation of Jesus to come and believe is for everyone, all tribes, all nations, Jews, Gentiles, and anyone else. Come, believe. Whoever feeds and drinks or whoever believes and trusts in what Christ accomplished for them on the cross already has eternal life. The verb has is present tense. If you believe eternal life is yours now, you you have it now. It's already, but it's not yet. It's also coming in future glory at the last day. Your faith in Christ is proof of your eternal life in Christ, which will come in all fullness at the last day. You've heard the saying, seeing is believing. No, eating is believing. Augustine wrote, believe and you have eaten already. Notice the striking similarity between verses 54 and verse 40. 54 and 40. Feeding and drinking for eternal life in verse 54 parallels looking and believing for eternal life in verse 40. Both ending in resurrection on the last day. And how can Jesus give us, can guarantee us, can promise us resurrection and eternal life? Because of verse 55. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The manna, Jesus mentioned earlier in chapter six, gave life for a very short time. Everyone who ate it died. See verse 58 for that. Jesus is true, lasting, eternal food and drink. Verse 55 connects with verse 58. And verse 32 where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The true bread, a superior bread, an eternally life-sustaining bread. If you're eating and drinking the true bread from heaven, you're alive. You're alive. Verse 56, Jesus continues, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, remains in me, dwells in me, lives in me, and I in him. Now that's mysterious. That's mysterious. A mysterious, vital union with Christ. 
We live in Him. He lives in us. Inseparable. Now, I love bread. French baguettes, dinner rolls, um, warm challah bread with butter, just like, just dunk it in, you know, whatever. Focaccia bread with dipping oils. Do you know those dipping oils with the seasonings and you just, just wipe it up on the plate and there's never enough. They always have to gl- 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 pour, my, just give me like a bowl to like bury my head in. Dip out the fogaccia bread from the dipping, you know, it could be a fun picnic game or something. Pumpkin bread at Thanksgiving. I mean, I can eat just an unhealthy amount of pumpkin bread. Bread is delicious. Bread is exquisite. Now, what happens when we eat bread? It becomes part of us, right? becomes part of us. We consume it and the carbohydrates and the B vitamins give us energy. Fiber promotes good health in multiple ways. Magnesium strengthens bones and is required for proper nerve and muscle function. So as we consume bread, it becomes part of us and we derive all of the benefits from it. Understand why Jesus chose this analogy. For first century Jews living under Roman rule, Bread didn't complement the meal. Bread was the meal. It was the meal. Bread was life. When we believe Jesus, He becomes part of us and nourishes us spiritually. He gives us strength. He gives us life. We need Him. We thrive off of Him. We enjoy Him. We are united to Him as one. Theologian Louis Burkhoff wrote, Every spiritual blessing which believers received flows to them out of Christ. It flows from Christ into our lives. He just pours His goodness into us and sustains us. Our repentance, faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, strength to persevere day after day, and the guarantee of our future glorification all flow from Christ. Jesus is not a one-time good meal that we eat and we're done, but a daily and essential feast for life. This is what it means to feed on His flesh and drink of His blood. It's faith. He's talking about faith. It's being alive in Christ and united to Him. Romans 6.5 teaches this. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Please, Jerusalem church, understand the significance of that for you. You just cannot afford to miss that verse. Being united to Christ by faith means your old self, the person that you used to be, died with Christ on the cross. We are dead to sin, and because of our vital union with Jesus, we are also resurrected with Him. We are alive to God in Christ Jesus, and though death comes for all of us, everyone united to Christ will live again for we await the final resurrection. Jesus said in John 15, 4, Abide in me, and I in you. 
And that happens by faith. He said, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. We die when Christ was on the, we, that, that means you stop saying, I got this. I can handle this. And it becomes, being a Christian is becoming completely dependent on someone else. I don't know if this is a good analogy. It's, just, it's not in the notes, so God strike it if this is not good. It's the welfare state of Jesus. We just, we just constantly are in desperate need. We can do nothing. We just sit and receive. And He strengthens us to live and to do and to abide in him, and he abides in us, inseparable, united to our Savior. We can do nothing unless we eat and drink of Jesus. But if we do, we abide in him and he in us, and our lives show that vital union. Your union with Christ automatically produces beautiful fruit in your life. You really live. D.A. Carson puts it so powerfully that the believer remains in Jesus means he or she continues to be identified with Jesus, continues as a Christian, continues in saving faith and consequent transformation of life. That Jesus remains in the believer means that Jesus identifies himself with the believer in help, blessing, life, and personal presence by the Spirit. When you eat and drink, Jesus is your life. He's your identity. Not your spouse, not your kids, not your work or what you accomplish, not your personal history. Jesus defines you. And you press on to follow him as he transforms your life. Jesus didn't die on the cross giving himself so that you can continue to live the way you always lived. He gave his life on the cross so that you could be set free and live a new kind of life. Free from the oppression and rule of sin. If you're truly eating and drinking, you're alive, you're growing, you're bearing good fruit, you're living for Christ. Verse 57 is a great verse. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live Because of me. Because of me. God was not made in a factory. Our Father is alive. And He sent Jesus, the eternally begotten Son. This gets a little tricky. The Son of God had no beginning. He's eternal. He's eternally begotten of the Father. Yet when the Son gained His human body and human nature, God gave Him life. Do you track that? Therefore, anyone who feeds on Jesus by faith will live because of Jesus. Through Jesus, we become united to the living God. And it's an awesome thought that we live because Jesus makes us live. He makes us alive. Do you know your heart beats because Jesus says, keep the beat. Your lungs expand and contract because... God keeps your lungs functioning. Jesus wants you alive for some reason. I think it has to do with His glory. 
Jesus is the sustaining power of life, and without him, there is no life. There's only death. Now, I've enjoyed some amazing restaurants and meals in my lifetime. Christine and I enjoyed going to different places, and so we've enjoyed uh, fine dining uh, at Isabella's on Grandview, high atop Mount Washington, overlooking the city of Pittsburgh, probably one of the most fantastic skylines, in my estimation, of all the United States. And, and you can see it from Isabella's just an amazing scene, and then a seven-course meal. Uh, you pay for it, but it's a great thing for special occasions, you know. I've eaten the finest steak in my life at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, downtown Pittsburgh. If you've never, I just said Pittsburgh. It's like I'm, fr- honey, you, what is happening? Man, alive, I'm back in Pittsburgh. That's terrible. Um, Ruth's Chris, if you haven't had one of the, you, you just get it by itself. It comes sizzling, so don't touch the plate. It'll burn you. Amazing steak, New York strip steak. Highly recommend it. Uh, in Boston, along the Freedom Trail, there's this little little place just sitting there. Very, very cool place. It's a historical landmark called the Green Dragon Tavern. And uh, it was established in 1654, and Paul Revere and John Hancock used to dine there at this place. And, and that's the place where the plans for the invasion of Lexington and Concord were overheard, thus beginning uh, Paul Revere's ride. And I ate lobster where Paul Revere ate. That's just amazing. It was a great meal with Christina. But out of all the delicious meals that I've eaten, and there are countless numbers of them, people's homes, my mom, my wife, just tons of good meals, it's, it's odd, none of them have kept me satisfied. None. I've always had to eat again. It's funny how that happens. My hunger returned. If I stop eating, I stop living. Only one thing has the sufficiency to satisfy forever. Jesus is forever satisfying and sustaining. Jesus said in verse 58, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. God sent manna to feed Israel for a time. But more than that, God sent his only son to feed his people forever. Israel ate manna. It was good, but they died. However, anyone who feeds on Jesus Christ by faith, though he dies, he will live forever. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, and you could say, feeds on me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Many things we enjoy in this life are good. They're really good. You hear me talk a lot about pleasure and joy in Jesus Christ above all things, and sometimes the danger is we minimize the pleasures of the, of the world that God gives us, the blessings. They're good. They're really, really good. They give us a certain amount of happiness, but isn't it true that they're only for a time? It's true. Everything in life passes. Life offers unlimited, limited pleasures, But Jesus sustains and satisfies forever. Tom Brady is absolutely one of the best quarterbacks I've ever seen play the game. He'll be in the Hall of Fame, absolutely. And back in 2005, he was interviewed by 60 Minutes correspondent Steve Croft. And Brady was was sharing about his his really tough, uh, the, the pressure, I guess, that he puts on himself being an NFL quarterback. And he said this, Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what is. 
I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me? Think about that. You're one of the best that ever lived. You're on the top. You've got the rings to back up your worth. You've accomplished your goals. You've accomplished your dreams. You're actually living the life you've always wanted to live. It's actually real for you. It's right there, the world that you're taking. And yet with great sincerity, you're asking, what else is there for me? Even overwhelming success cannot provide you freedom from the relentless thought, it's got to be more than this. It's got to be more than this. Didn't Solomon, the man who had absolutely everything, didn't he say, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the, the wind? Steve Croft then asked Brady this question, what's the answer? What's the answer? Listen to Brady's striking answer. He said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I mean, I think that's part of me trying to go out and, under, and experience other things. I love playing football, and I love being a quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. I know what ultimately makes me happy are family and friends and positive relationships with great people, I think I get more out of that than anything. And you know, there's something about us that wants to say, yeah, family and friends is more important than football. (laughs) But how tragic of an answer that is. (laughs) Family and friends are awesome. They're great. They're fulfilling. They're certainly better than football or success, at least Sunday through uh, Thursday, and then Friday comes football, and football's better than... No, they're always better. Positive relationships are fulfilling. They're good. They're to be enjoyed. They're, They're unreplaceable. But are they ultimate? What is... What in this life satisfies forever? Even family and friends are transitory, only fleeting... And I don't know where Brady is with Christ, but Christ is the answer to his question, what else is there for me? Tom, Jesus puts the me at, talk to Tony Dungy. Sit down and talk to Tony Dungy. He'll tell you how Jesus adds meaning to football. One last thought, stomach and pancreatic cancer and some types of leukemia can actually cause your body to feel full after eating only a little bit of food. Obviously, that's very dangerous. Sin is cancer. It allows us to nibble on life's small and insufficient pleasures, just nibbling away, and and it leaves us feeling artificially full. When in reality, we really need to eat Jesus. Sin prevents us from feeling the uncomfortable effect of our hunger and need for Jesus, and it makes Jesus undesirable. We don't want him when we feel full, but we're not full. We're really hungry. And only God can sovereignly clue us in on how hungry we really are. 
Do you know the discomfort you feel, that ache that's there almost every day, that sense that something isn't quite right? What about that low feeling after the party or after the mountaintop experience or after we've had a really fun time or after we've preached a sermon? Do you know most Sundays I feel down after I preach? I just feel down. What is that? Why is that uncomfortable thing there? Sometimes we can't put our finger on exactly what it is. Sometimes we try to ignore it. Sometimes we add more to the schedule so we don't have to think about that uncomfortable feeling that's there every day. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you identify with that at all? That is your need for Jesus. That is your hunger for Jesus. It it would be awful to feel so full that you failed to assess your deepest hunger, your hunger for God. Eat, Jerusalem. Drink. Be satisfied. Binge yourself on Jesus Christ and he will fulfill you forever. I want to end by reading Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. And I just want you to take all that we've just uh, looked at in this passage and to just run it through this. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Let's pray. God, how rich and glorious and filling is your Son, Jesus Christ. How much you give us in your Son. God, I pray that you expose our hunger to us this morning, how much we are in desperate need of Jesus. And I pray that you fill every last craving in our heart and every last craving in our soul with you. God, fill us, satisfy us, and help us to recognize that on this side of heaven, there's going to be a tension. There's going to be hunger. But one day, At the last day when we resurrect to new life and Jesus takes us to be with him forever, we will be forever satisfied. We will have no hunger pains for there you will be in all your splendid glory filling us for eternity. God, give us a taste. Help us to taste and see that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.